Uh, we'll hear argument next to number 9526, Herbert Markman and Positec versus Westview Instruments, Inc. Whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. This is a constitutional case. It concerns the Seventh Amendment guarantee of the right to jury trial on infringement issues in patent infringement actions for damages. It is established that the Seventh Amendment guarantees the constitutional right to jury trial in civil cases as it existed in 1791 in England. Accordingly, we submit that it is decisive here that in England in 1791, the meaning of the terms of patents, the meaning of patent specifications were submitted to the jury. Uh, consistent with that common law practice, uh, that became the early understanding in the United States. And that early understanding was confirmed as the years passed by outstanding judges noted for their efforts in the patent area, uh, such as Justice Thury in the mid-19th century and Judge Learned Hand in the mid-20th century. I've had a little trouble finding that confirmation that you seem to have found. I mean, Judge Hand's opinion uh, seemed ambiguous, and it also certainly says that in the part that favors you, that it's a question of fact. Yes. All right? So where does that get us? It, uh, it, Judge Hand indicates that the issue is a question of fact. I have no doubt about that. But what, where, where, what is the, the question of how people uh, in a particular industry see a particular word and interpret it is a linguistic question that is a factual question as to how they interpret it. Yes. That's true. But where does that get us? That gets us under the Seventh Amendment. Why? There are dozens and dozens of things. We just heard a case where there are all kinds of facts which judges decide. There are many, many facts that judges decide. We write about segregation, we write about integration, we write about uh, gerrymandering, we write about dozens and dozens of things. We write about antitrust laws, which have to do with theories of economics. There are thousands and thousands of facts that judges decide in interpreting statutes and uh, rules of evidence and in uh, preliminary matters. Why is this the kind of question of fact that the Seventh Amendment requires to go to a jury? For two reasons, because of the common law practice, and I, also... What, what is the case? Fine. Go, I, I'm trying to get you to discuss this, because I, I read many of those, not all of the cases, and I couldn't find something that was directly on point, not even learned hand, because the earlier part of the opinion you're thinking of seems to go just the other way, and the part that you're thinking of seemed to have involved a factual matter that had to do with the word saturation, which they agreed about the meaning of. Uh, under the... Uh, understanding under the jurisprudence of the Seventh Amendment, uh, under decisions of this case, factual issues on the merits of a claim uh, are for the jury. Uh, in I the know case, that's the conclusion. I'm saying what would you say is the strongest case in your favor in respect to the factual question as to how the industry understands the meaning of a term in a patent application, a term that will give the person who holds up a monopoly uh, under the law 
to exclude competitors. That's the precise thing, and what your opponents say is there's nothing that favors you on that precise point. Uh, on that precise point, we go back to the common law practice, uh, where in Lynette versus Johnston, Allwright versus Nightingale, and other cases, common law, the meaning of patent terms was submitted to the jury. Uh, those particular cases uh, involved uh, validity issues, but it is uh, was understood at common law and is understood in uh, law today that the patent means the same thing for infringement as it does for validity. It wouldn't make any sense otherwise. The patent can't mean one thing at one stage of the trial and another thing at another stage of the trial. But your, so, your opponents argue, if I understand it, that there is an issue today, uh, the issue in this case, that was not a jury issue, in fact, was not understood as an independent issue at the time that you refer to uh, as your standard of practice. And that was, uh, there, there was not the, 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 the modern notion of patent claim and therefore there was not an issue of construing a patent claim. Your opponents say that the, the two kinds of issues that the, that the old juries considered uh, were issues of enablement and, I guess, issues of just design identity. Yeah, whether uh, there was sufficient disclosure, right. whether it was an advancement uh, of novelty in the prior art, and, and those kind of issues were left to the jury, which necessarily involved the jury interpreting what the specifications mean in order to decide whether... But they say the specifications that you're talking about are, are simply, uh, simply different kinds of statements uh, from the statement of claim. And you, you say in, in your reply brief, well, the word claim was not used uh, in, the, in the 18th and early 19th century as it is used today, but that issue was still there. And I, I, you may be right on that, but I just, I just, I guess, couldn't follow you to your conclusion. How do we know the issue was there? Yes. First of all, uh, at common law had a specification that described uh, the invention. It was required at common law that the was that a physical description of the invention? Yeah, a, a, a description by words. You know, this is a box and it has a crank and so a door. On, where so you see okay. in patents. And that's, and that's something quite different from, from what we're talking about in the modern sense of no, claim. No, I don't think it is. Okay. And, uh, and let me explain. Uh, first, at common law, it was necessary that the specifications distinctly enclosed what, disclose what the invention was, disclosure part of it. Uh, early cases... Uh, show that uh, patents uh, in the early part of the century uh, would often end with the words, I claim, as a way of making it clear as to what the claim was. What, Eventually, what, in what, eight, what words did you say they ended with? Pardon? Uh, what words did you say that they, they ended with? I claim. I, cl I claim. Eventually, the statute of 1836 specifically referred to the word claim. The statute of 1870 had a specific requirement, that is the modern uh, patent practice, that the specification end with the word I claim and then set forth the invention. It was always required to set forth the invention. This is just a particular way in, in modern practice that you set it forth. And the claim in modern practice is interpreted in light of the specifications. It would be rare for the specification not to include a term that's in the claim. So our position, Justice Souter, is that that formal distinction, that rearranging, which does not go uh, uh, 
to the substance of the matter, cannot uh, undermine the precedent at common law that uh, where judges, Lloyd Mansfield in particular, an eminent judge at common law, submitted uh, the interpretation of the specification to the jury. The, the formal dis- differences in claim practice, practices cannot uh, eliminate the Seventh Amendment right. So the specification of the early cases includes the claim as we understand it today. That's, is that, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, your position? Yeah, yes. Uh, it, there's no uh, substantive difference, and the formalities were uh, not significantly different. Well, I think the specification... No I'm sorry. And it has no impact on Seventh Amendment rights. Otherwise, it would be easy to get rid of the Seventh Amendment in any case. But, Mr. Mallon, you agree, I think, that the scope of the claim, the construction of the claim, is a question of law of the court. But you, you are distinguishing interpretation of a term from the ultimate question. Well, why don't those two go together? That is, if the court is charged with making the ultimate determination of the scope of what's encompassed within the claim, then why shouldn't subsidiary matters on the way to that ultimate determination also be made by the court? Uh, Justice Ginsburg, because of the Seventh Amendment, the standard formula that we often hear uh, is that the construction of the claim, the construction of the patent, is an ultimate question of law. But until recently, it was also said the underlying factual disputes are for the fact finder, a judge when it's a a case for the judge or a jury case. Well, Mr. Mallon, I'm thinking of this kind of question. You were careful to say on the merits, if there's a question on the merits. Yes. But in threshold questions, for example, jurisdictional questions, like diversity of citizenship, there's a dispute about where one of the parties resides. That's, and it's a fact question. It's a fact question, but the question of is the jurisdictional requirement met is a question for the court. And so we don't have the jury decide, hearing the evidence. There may well be evidence on that question, but it's determined by the court, right? Even though it's a fact it's question. It's determined by the court, uh, and it was determined by the court as far as I understand the common law. I think the judge's decisions on the facts on jurisdiction would be appealable under clearly erroneous rule. It's not the effort here, Your Honor, is to say this matter of what uh, uh, the uh, claim means is a legal question uh, that uh, uh, it's not a factual question at all. Would it be a legal question if you didn't have any testimony, if all you had was the claim, the specification, and the prosecution history. It's a matter, I think, of terminology there, Justice Ginsburg. I don't think it's a legal question. It was still a factual question. But judges in all kinds of civil cases take disputes away from the jury uh, as a matter of law because there's no factual support for a particular contention. The judge has that gatekeeper's role in jury cases. And that sense of saying that something doesn't go to the jury because the judge decides it as a matter of law doesn't change the issue from fact to a legal question. It simply says there's not appropriate... Suppose the judge looks at that material and says, I can see that there's an argument the other way, but this is enough for me. I think that the term means X based on the documentary evidence. And I don't want to hear... I, I know the parties are going to get... Each one will get an expert, and that's not going to help me. 
I, I don't, I, I, like any uh, factual question in a civil jury case, if the judge is able to determine that it is clear in the face of the documents and there is no general, genuine dispute of fact, then the judge can determine uh, that question as a matter of law in the sense I indicated. Uh, well, some the of the dissenters in this very case thought that was the situation here, didn't they? No, the, the, the judge in these cases, the trial judge first held that this was a legal question exclusively, exclusively for the judge in every case. Wasn't, wasn't there uh, one or more dissents written or separate opinions written at the appellate court level? Maybe a concurring opinion. Yeah, there was a short concurring opinion where a concurring judge indicated that he didn't think there was sufficient evidence to support our position. Right. But that isn't what the majority did. The majority said that the question was a legal question in every case and here are the exclusively for the judge. The question is whether the inventory uh, referred to the articles of clothing? Yes. The, the, and it boils down to that. The, the particular uh, question in the case was whether the word inventory used in the claim and the specifications was limited only to article clo uh, clothing or could cover a dollar inventory reflected by invoices and dollars associated with the invoices. Supposing, you, supposing this, the word inventory appeared uh, in a contract and uh, there was no uh, evidence, aliande, as they say, no evidence of intent, uh, do you think a, a judge could interpret that as a, as a, w without submitting it to the jury, even though it was quite debatable? on either side as to what it meant? Well, it, it depends on the particular circumstances, but if the issue is what does the word inventory mean in the particular in industry uh, that's involved in a contract, Professor Corbin and Professor Williston would say yes, that meaning of language is a factual question in a jury trial. So, jury. so then if you, if you have a contract that uses the word inventory, uh, and there, there's no testimony as to what people meant. It's simply a, docu a documented, written contract. That is a factual question that would go to the well, jury? No, in order for it to be a factual question to go to the jury, someone must offer evidence on it as to its meaning uh, to the well, industry involved. So, okay, supposing that I'm, uh, the, we have this contract with the word inventory, and someone comes in and says, I, I offer X who will testify what the parties meant when they uh, used the word inventory in the contract. Now, Your Honor, I would suggest that the analogy is, uh, in the particular contract, if this is the relevant question, what does inventory mean in a particular industry or to one skilled in that? And the, the patent analogy to contract is made sometimes, but we have to remember what a patent and its term is talking about. In a patent case, the question is what the term means to one skilled in the art. That is a factual question of what it means to one skilled in the art. If there's no real factual dispute, like any other case, the judge can decide it. But if there's factual evidence... Uh, uh, but or ordinarily, uh, I understood the law to be that uh, uh, the terms of a written contract are interpreted as a matter of law. It isn't a question of fact. But, Williston and uh, Corbin, as we cite in our brief in some cases, make the distinction that is similar to the distinction in patent law that the construction of uh, the patent, of the contract in your hypothetical, is uh, for the court, its legal effect, 
But if there's a question about the meaning of language, that's a factual dispute to be resolved as a factual matter. Suppose uh, a statute used the word inventory, say in an income tax refund case tried before a jury. Uh, would would the meaning of the term inventory in a statute uh, be for the court, would it not? Uh, the, uh, the interpretation of statutes as a matter, uh, as a legal matter, uh, is for the court. So do you, do you think it's an appropriate way for us to begin looking at this case to ask whether or not the patent is more like a statute uh, or a contract? Yeah. That's what the briefs discuss. Do you think that's an appropriate way for us to I, I think that's look a, at this a very collateral way. Uh, because of the direct authority uh, from uh, the common law. Well, if we find that if we disagree with you on how persuasive and clear that direct authority is, then do you think that we can legitimately decide this case by asking whether or not the patent is more like a contract on one hand or a statute on the other? That would be a factor. And on that issue, Justice Kennedy, uh, uh, I would respectfully suggest that a... uh, patent is not like a statute. It's not analogous to a statute. Of course, it's not a statute. A patent is not a publicly piece, uh, a publicly enacted piece of legislation from the political process. Well, but it does seem to me more like a statute than a contract in this respect. There is an interest, uh, maybe you'll disagree, but I should think there is an interest in a uniform interpretation of the meaning of a particular patent, just as there is with a statute. And it seems to me that if the interpretation of the patent is a question for the court, a question of law, uh, or at least a, a, a question of, of interpretation, mixed question of law and fact, there may be even evidence on the point, uh, that it's a, a question properly reserved for the court in order to have uniformity in its interpretation. I think the search for uniformity is misdirected and contrary to the... Uh, uh, Seventh Amendment. It's not important it, to have uniformity in the patent. It, it, it would be nice to have patent. it, but it's the practicality of it. It's agreed by everybody, including the majority, that in order to interpret the terms of a patent to one skilled in the art, that it's appropriate to take evidence. And whether the judge is deciding it or the jury is deciding it, the evidence has to be looked at. Well, I would have thought that under a patent scheme where the applicant for a patent has to set forth very clearly what's covered and how it can be made so that everyone is put on notice of what is patented and what is claimed and how it can be produced. And I would think the patent office wouldn't want to accept something about which there might be wildly different views of what's claimed. I mean, the whole scheme seems to me one that is designed to make it as clear and simple as possible to put people on notice. And uh, what you are arguing seems to be at some divergence of that approach. Would, would there be many cases today where the question of the meaning of a term in the patent would have to go to a jury? Um, I, I really don't know quantitatively whether to be many, but there are uh, many cases in the books, and it's settled law at the federal circuit level, uh, that uh, in order to interpret the patent, that it is appropriate to look at what they call extrinsic evidence, uh, what happened before the patent office, what expert testified, the state of the prior art. It seems like most of the cases you rely on resulted in some kind of general verdict where the patent ends up having to be compared to something quite different. And it's hard to tell from those cases whether there's this 
separate factual issue uh, on the meaning it, it, of, of the patent construction. Uh, pardon me. It seems to me that they're intertwined together, and you cannot separate the one from the other. I would like to return to the uh, uh, statute analogy. I think it is very important to understand that in 200 years of litigation over patents in this country and at the common law, as far as we can find or has been cited, the analogy to a statute has never been used before this case. Before what about the analogy in one of the briefs to uh, patents for land and also scope of copyright? This is in the uh, surgical corporation brief. Gave, gave those two analogies as being perhaps closer. I think a copyright is far different from a pat patent. A patent is not a land grant. I have difficulty going off to the analogies when we have clear Seventh Amendment rules and we have the English common law practice that, if, that's if, been cited. If the reason I, I, I don't find them determinative yet. That is to say, if they're not determinative, then and I'm assuming they're not. What is the right analogy? There are so many instances where judges do take evidence where they do decide factual matters which don't have to go to a jury. And that's why I'm looking for the analogy. What about agency rules where technical terms are used? Uh, uh, where what you want if you're a judge reviewing that agency rule is you want to know what the agency really had in mind. You might want to refer to the industry. Uh, it might come in in a tort case, for example. You see a jury case. And, and I would be surprised if you had to leave up to the jury the determination of interpreting the agency rule that used a technical term. I, I mean, maybe it's such a good analogy that it's never come up, and therefore it's a bad I, I don't analogy. know that it has. I would say you have your jury, and, and the agency is up there talking about dioxin, SO4, uh, uh, Ishkabibble, whatever, something very, very hard to understand, and the agency interpretation is relevant, and the parties say to the judge, Judge, will you instruct the jury as to what that agency rule means? I, I don't think you'd have to have the jury decide it, even though you might take evidence on it. You have to look at the common law action to which the Seventh Amendment attached. Well, it's a tort action. If they take, take a tort action. But I don't think they'd ever say that the jury has to decide the meaning of a statute, and by that I would say the jury would never have to decide the meaning of an agency yes. rule, even though it could use technical terms on which experts... We're, we're not here contending that juries ought to decide meanings of statutes. Or, the, or agency rules, and now what about patents? Uh, where it is... At, at patents, we say... Uh, on the authority that we cite, yeah, right. that when there's a genuine dispute, that, uh, and the analogy that's been referred to at uh, common law and by this court has been an analogy to contracts, not statute. Take a malpractice case where the issue is what a medical term means to physicians. I would suggest to you that under the Seventh Amendment jurisprudence, the question of what that medical term means to physicians would go to the jury. But that, that's a tort action. Uh, you're not talking about some sort of a relatively integrated written instrument, which I think in different branches of the law has been treated differently than just ord ordinary oral testimony. Well, in the malpractice case, uh, my hypothetical could, could, could include whatever that medical term happened to be used. It might be in a complete instrument or not. What about and, a question of foreign law? which, uh, as I understand it, judges decide as a, an issue of law, even though they hear expert testimony from those 
are skilled in what the foreign law might yeah, the, be. Yeah, the rule seems to be there that the uh, uh, the material, the legal material, is proved as a fact, and then the judges look at the statute. But we don't submit that to the jury, do we? No. No. You do not. That, according to the uh, new federal rules, have been changed. And I don't know that that's ever been dealt with. Well, we never to, did as submit it to the jury, did we? I would like not to proved as a fact. It's just that oral testimony is heard. Experts say what they think the foreign law means. It doesn't change the, the fact that there's, ex, there's evidence, that there's testimony, doesn't determine whether something is a question of fact or law. Uh, Your Honor, in that situation, it's clear it's foreign law. And uh, uh, that is a legal point. But th this court in the validity uh, area, for example, has made it clear that the way you look to see that something is factual when you're looking at determinations based upon weighing evidence, uh, 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 persuasiveness, and credibility, those are factual issues. And in the validity context, the ultimate question of validity is a question of law, but nonetheless, the underlying factual issues, like the state of the art, uh, that go to the determination of non-obviousness are uh, submitted to the jury or, or the fact finder. How many English cases do you have supporting this? Because I, you know, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of, of, of the, uh, the certainty or per, perhaps indeed even the existence of, uh, of the English law. No, and, and As I, you know, the, uh, one of the amicus says uh, from 1750 to 1799, there were only 18 patent decisions at common law in England. There was no coherent body of English patent law to be known by the enactors of the Seventh Amendment. Uh, How many English cases do you rely on? Uh, the reported cases that we uh, rely upon uh, are one, two, three, four, five, six, if I count them. Six, and how many of them involve, uh, involve the definiteness issue rather than, uh, rather than the nature of the claim? Uh, I, I, I can't just... Some of them anyway. That issue, some of them anyway. Maybe most of them. Novel to issue some, whether there was an adequate disclosure so that one skilled in the art uh, could uh, mm -hmm. uh, make the machine. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Mallon. Mr. Griffin, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Contrary to the petitioner's position, Seventh Amendment policy, precedent, and reason support the conclusion which was reached by the Federal Circuit in this case that in a patent infringement action tried to a jury, it is the province of the Court to determine the meaning of the words used in the claim language as a matter of law. Do we have to decide this case on as global a basis as the Federal Circuit decided to say that it's always thus or it's never thus? No, Mr. Chief, Chief Justice, because in this case, uh, there was no question about the meaning of the language in the patent, no real question about the meaning of the language used in the patent. And that was the conclusion by the trial judge, by the eight judges writing in the majority, by the two judges concurring, uh, and uh, uh, Judge Newman, who dissented, uh, did not disagree with the interpretation of the patent. 
But if that were going to be our basis for decision, we wouldn't be deciding very much, would we? Because we would simply be saying that in a patent case, as in any other case, if there is no dispute of fact with, as to which there could be reasonable disagreement as a matter of law, the court must declare the conclusion. And that that really wouldn't decide very much, would it? That is correct, Your Honor. So if, if we don't decide on that extremely narrow ground, do we have to decide as globally as the circuit did? No, you don't, because I think it is taking it, looking at the interpretation of the claim. Uh, one here could conclude that there was just no substantial evidence to support the jury verdict below. Right? But if you no, go, if you wish no, but to if, go... If we are going to decide something broader than that, can we decide it on a basis less globally than, than less global than the basis that the circuit employed? I, I understood I your argument to be, I understood you to be arguing two things in your brief. Let me put it this way. One was that as a matter of law, no reasonable jury could come to any other conclusion anyway. That's the narrow ground. I also understood you to be arguing that even if there were factual disputes, evidentiary uh, questions, as to which reasonable jury or reasonable fact finders might come to differing conclusions, it was still an issue for the court. That is uh, correct. The latter is your position, isn't it? That's correct. And that's the global position. That's the global position. So if, if we're not going to decide this as simply uh, a, uh, a, a case uh, about the particular evidence going to this dry cleaning patent, then your position is we do have to decide it as globally as the circuit did. Yes, sir. Yes. Is, is that suppose, suppose I thought this hypothetically. This is, do you remember the learned hand case? Are you pretty familiar with that? I'm not completely familiar with it, but I understand it. All right. At the end of, suppose I thought this. In the end of the opinion, they're talking about the word saturation. And they say it means that after a certain point, there won't be a lot of variation in electrons. Then the question is, what's that point? And they call in some experts. They say plus or minus 6%. That's a question of fact. He says, right. at the beginning of the opinion, he's talking about the length of a beam. Do the words in this document mean you have a long beam, or does it mean long in relation to the width? Now, he says there, assuming experts would say it meant the latter, I still think it means the former. You see? Yes, judges, all right. Suppose you thought as a result of that, Sometimes you should send it to a jury, and sometimes you shouldn't. And let's leave it up to the judges to decide, because they understand electron saturation and things 50 times better than I do after they've heard four <laughs> days of testimony on it. Suppose that was your belief of what the law should be. Now, how would you get there in this case? If that were my belief as to what the law would be, uh, I would get there in this case uh, by exactly the same route that the district judge did uh, here. The, but, the but, circuit seems to say it's never a question for the jury. It's yeah. always a question for the judge. Well, the, so if you thought sometimes it should be the one, sometimes it should be the other, and the district judge, how, how would you get there? Well, that's difficult for me to, to consider because I, that's not my view of what the law yeah, is or ought to be. Uh, and it's a, it's a tough question for me to stand here and come up with an answer for you because I think that under this court's decisions and under a proper Seventh Amendment analysis, this issue of what is the meaning of words, what's the definition of a term, is a question of law for the court. And is, in all instances, even when the court has to go outside of the patent documents to get information about uh, the meaning of the term. 
Mr. Griffin, do I understand correctly that the division in the Federal Circuit, they, they took this case in bank because they were internally divided? That's what I understand, Your Honor. And one took the uh, position that it's always for the jury, and one took the position that it's always for the court, but I didn't see in the division within the circuit anything in between. I did not see anything in between either, Your Honor. No discretion left to the district judge, at least of the division within the Federal Circuit panels. Judge Newman would leave it to the jury in all cases, and Judge Archer, Chief Judge Archer, in none. In none, and it would appear that the uh, concurring uh, judges would in some instances. It's very difficult to see. When, I, when the case was before the Federal Circuit, one of the issues and one of the questions was, can you think of any time where there would be an underlying fact issue which would be appropriate to go to the jury? And I could not think of one. And, as, and I've tried to think of one yet today, and I can't think of one, because a patent, is a, a patent claim is by statute required to be definite. The patent claim is in context of the specification and the prosecution history. Then why, why, why do you ever hear evidence about it? Because sometimes, Your Honor, the court needs to go outside of those documents to learn about the meaning of terms. But when the court does that, it's hearing that information in the context of what the claim says and in the context of the specification of the prosecution history. And it is learning yeah, how the words are used. Well, why, why couldn't a fairly narrow instruction be submitted to the jury? As to which of the, if there are two experts, as to which of the two experts you credit? I don't think it should get down to that, Your Honor, and I don't believe that it, it does get down to that, because the, the question isn't one which is a typical issue of credibility of experts yeah, on the stand. It's not a question where you're well, judging. Suppose, in, court, suppose you know. in a particular case it is. Supposing the judge says to himself, I know both these experts are qualified, but I think B is making up his story. Had it been submitted to the jury, it would have been just the opposite. The jury thought A was making up his story. Now, why should the judge's view prevail over the jury on a question of credibility like that? If there were such an instance, that would be a difficult question, yes, sir. But I don't believe that when you look at the meaning of the term within the context of the patent, the claim, the prosecution history, and the information that's received, that you will get to a point where credibility determinations are going to be what deter what illuminates well, say, what a word means to a specific skill. Well, you know, they say well, figures don't lie, but liars do figure. And occasionally you do, do get experts whose credibility may be in doubt. I think that that is something that happens quite often. Why shouldn't a question like that go to the jury? Because the issue is not is one which is peculiarly for the judge. It's not going to be an issue of credibility as far as the in-court testimony goes. It's going to be the question of the logic of the testimony but, and the information. But why shouldn't it be a question of credibility of in-court testimony if, if the finder of fact, whether it's a judge or a jury, decides that one of the experts is simply lying? That would be the same instance if in a question of foreign law. Yeah. Yes, sir, if there was one expert who was... Yeah, telling the court that the, the law of France meant one thing and another saying the, it meant the other. So you see, you, this is simply taken out of the normal 
uh, factual review by a jury. It's the same sort of issue as foreign law or jurisdiction, diversity. Uh, yes, sir. Mr. Griffin, I, I, I was surprised to hear you say that, you know, if there were really a, a significant, didn't you say earlier, if there were a significant credibility problem, it, it would go to the jury? I said, I was asked to assume that there might be. I cannot believe that there can be a situation, Your Honor, when there can be a significant, in, de, in defining the terms used in a patent claim, as they are framed within the patent claim itself, illuminated by the specification, illustrated by the prosecution history, that credibility determinations among the experts are going to determine what a term means to a relevant, skilled community. But you, so, but, but were that the case, you'd be willing to entertain the notion that a jury would decide? No, I don't think it was necessary for I a jury I thought that was your that. position, and, and I thought one of the reasons you said it has to be left to the judge is that if you leave it to a jury, you can get divergent results as to the meaning of one patent all around the country, and no court would be able to reverse it because it could be a reasonable determination either way, and so you would have to affirm the jury finding. That's correct. You have a patent that has different meanings throughout the country. Well, you would end up with a patent. Whereas if the judge decides it, uh, ultimately, if it's a question of law for the judge, it can, be, it can be established as the rule nationwide. Be established as the rule and would be reviewed de novo. And that is well, that's a very policy, important factor. That is a policy reason, very much, yes, sir. It's a policy reason why this ought to be a matter of law for the court. Uh, uh, what, what, is, what other cases are there in which you have experts with conflicting opinions called uh, by both parties where the judge makes the decision? The, 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 the case is a difficult one because we're, we're searching for analogies. Aren't we? Well, the, the best the malpractice case, I think we all would agree uh, that it goes to the jury. The best analogies that I can think of, and I don't believe that analogies really control in the Seventh Amendment analysis, uh, Justice. The, the best analogies I can think of are foreign law. I, the interpretation can turn on credibility because the judge may not be able to read the language of the law. So. He, he is informed by what each expert says and may make the ba judgment on the basis of demeanor, but that doesn't change the issue from one of law to one of fact. That's correct, Mrs. Kimber. And I could also think of the uh, determination of uh, the meaning of agency regulations, which was referred to earlier. Well, well, let's I put it this way. Um, if you were to prevail, then in the patent area, uh, we would have more expert testimony being considered by the judge than in any other case that we know. That is, uh, Justice, if those who draft patents don't comply with the requirements of Section 112 to make them definite and to define the terms which they use. Can you give me some idea of how often conflicting expert testimony is presented in a patent case uh, on the issue of the meaning of, of the patent? I, I, I cannot from my own experience, although I can tell you from the suggestions uh, that have been made by the petitioner that it is an issue uh, in virtually every case. That's uh, what I would have thought. The, the seventh, you're, may, may I, just, I want to make sure I understand your argument. I understood your reply to Justice Scalia in, in effect to be it should be an issue of law for the court because that's the only way we're going to get national uniformity. Well, it should be an is, issue. Is that, is that a fair that's summary one, of what you said? That's right. one of the reasons why it right. would be an issue of law. Now, there was at one point in your brief, and in fact a, a couple of times this morning, I thought you were making a different argument, and that is the, the very fact that patent specifications must be made or ideally should be made in unambiguous terms 
somehow means or results that you don't have the problems of construction in patent documents that you may have uh, in contract documents. Patent documents are somehow less likely to be ambiguous, less likely to be messy. And for that reason, it makes sense to say there should be no jury questions in their construction. Uh, I'd be candid to say that I didn't understand why that should be so, but I thought at one point you were arguing that. Do you argue that? We argue that the distinction between patents and contracts is that the patent document is required by statute to be definite. Well, it's supposed to be. It's supposed but, you know, statutes are supposed to be definite, too, and, and they're frequently not. Uh, the, the fact that it, it, in an ideal world, the, the patent documents would not be in any way ambiguous doesn't seem to me to address the question in the real world that we've got, and that is, how do you determine what they mean when you can't figure it out? The, the real-world question of how do you determine what they mean when you can't figure it out is exactly what the patent statute is supposed to guard against, which is that it should be a definite claim, that it should be concise, that it should enable one skilled in the art to understand the meets and bounds of the invention so the public can stay away from that monopoly if the public chooses or the public can license that. Well, if, I, I understand that, but we, we get into court because there is a dispute about what a phrase means or a sentence means or a word means, uh, uh, or at least there is a claim of a, a dispute about that. Uh, and when there is such a claim, why is it the case that patent documents are somehow different from contract documents well, or more alike statutory documents? Because a, a, a contract, with a contract, the question is the subjective intent of the parties. Yeah. And with the patent document, we're not dealing with a question of subjective intent. We're dealing with Isn't the objective. Isn't the claim a matter of subjective intent? And not as far as the public is concerned. The public Are you has saying because it's the PTO's job before it accepts the statement, at least you have a government officer whose job it is to see that the claim is as definite as it's supposed to be. Now, that government officer can err and as you said, often does, because you said this question comes up in almost every case. Yeah. If, if it becomes a question of definiteness, uh, Justice Ginsburg, that is a question of law for the court. So it seems to me that you're saying your second reason, if you will, is, is basically a variant on the first reason. Your second, if I understand what you're saying now, you're saying, look, patent documents are supposed to be written in a way that would not raise questions of subjective intent, that would be perfectly clear to people who read them and so on. And because that's the way they're supposed to be written, we should not treat them as if they were written in other ways, e.g. to involve questions uh, of subjective intent. And therefore, in order to get the definiteness that patent law requires, we must treat this as a matter of law for judges only, so that we can ultimately get uniformity. Is that correct? That is correct. In other words, your, your, so your first argument for uniformity is buttressed by, in effect, what you say is the intent of the patent statute, and that is to provide some uniformity, and this is the only way you can get it, and this is therefore the only way you ought to, to read the statute. That is correct. Yeah. Well, okay. you said that's, scarce, that's somewhat contrary to the in, intuition one would get from the fact that apparently it's agreed that expert witnesses are necessary in almost every patent case. I think that is a result of patent practice uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and it, uh, I don't think it should be 
is the practice. How do you distinguish the questions of non-obviousness, enablement? Are those also questions for the court rather than for the for the jury? If I can uh, recall, the question of uh, non-obviousness, I believe, is a question. Uh, uh, my my mind is. I, don't know the answers. Because right. that's one of the concerns is if you could narrow what the Federal Circuit has done to the question of how do you read a term of a statute of the of the claim when the overall scope of the claim is for the court. That's one thing. Perhaps could be isolated. But then there are other questions of a similar nature, are there not? Well if if we got to a question of that was the patent anticipated by prior art? That would be a question of fact. If you know, there are punt, there are questions of fact where. But if, if, the if focus question, is, what does the term mean to someone ordinarily skilled in the art? Okay, why shouldn't the obviousness question go the same way? Would this um, invention um, be non-obvious to a person ordinarily skilled? The issue would be, what does the patent claim mean? And then with the other evidence yeah, of yeah, obviousness, it becomes a question then of what does, would it have been obvious to one uh, skilled in the art? What the Federal Circuit did in this case was... Uh, the, the one, so you're saying the one is a matter of claim construction, that's always a matter of law. The other isn't a matter of claim construction, so maybe that would be open to jury findings? That's correct. However, if you do leave it open to jury findings, what happens to uniformity? Jury in the West Coast well, says, gee, it seems perfectly obvious to us. Why should he be protected? Uh, jury on the East Coast says uh, quite the opposite. What happens to uniformity if, if you allow that exception? Haven't you got to go the whole hog here and say all of the issues that go ultimately to the enforceability of the patent have got to be treated as issues of law because otherwise you lose your uniformity? If the only argument is the uniformity argument, that is correct. Well, can you distinguish this question of what does the term in the claim mean? from non-obviousness is one. Another one is enablement. Could a person skilled in the art look at this pattern and build a machine? Well, enablement, I believe, uh, today is treated as a question of law. Uh, it was at you know, common law treated as a question of fact. Uh, so I think... What is the precedent that tells us that today it's treated as a question of law? I believe that that is... Uh, the holding of the uh, cases, and I don't have them. Uh, with How the is that consistent the with seventh the Seventh Amendment? Amendment? How does the Seventh? I think Justice Kennedy and I asked the same. That, that that would get me back to the, the Seventh Amendment uh, analysis here. That is is one of whether we we start with the, the proposition that this is a case which is tried to a jury, and so this court's historic analysis. And the cases, the, the so-called law equity cases that the court uh, has dealt with in determining whether a jury trial itself is applicable is not necessarily determinative in a case where there is a jury trial of what issues will be eventually given to the jury and what issues will be reserved for the judge. It is, in, it is an indication of how uh, one might project things, but it does not fix, this court's precedent does not fix in time, in 19, uh, 1791, 
all of the incidents of the jury trial. The, the Seventh Amendment requires that you preserve the essentials of it, which is that the jury decide those things which will be characterized as fact, and that the also preserves the role of the judge to decide those things which are characterized as law. And you, that sounds like a very strange interpretation of the Seventh Amendment to me. Are you saying that, that Congress could not confide more things to the jury as opposed to the judge than it was done at common oh, law in 1791? Oh, it, Congress could, and Congress in the, the, the patent yeah, setting could enact a statute which says that the, uh, all questions of uh, patent infringement or validity are to be tried by an Article I court. And that would not violate the Seventh Amendment. Didn't the Seventh Amendment, I mean, in, if you go back to the English practice, my impression in reading this, that you know it better and will correct me, is that questions like originality or, or uh, non-obviousness, etc., were quite close if they weren't directly the kinds of things that they did leave to a jury. That's correct. Is that right? They, they, so then, so then, then the question would be, if that's so, then they have to be left to a jury, I guess, for present purposes. Is that right? I do not believe so. But, but is it the case that for you to win this case, we also have to decide the question of whether originality, etc., or non-obviousness, is for a judge or a jury? No. Why not? Because the You're issue saying? that's presented in this case is the question of whether the interpretation of the meaning of the words used mm -hmm. in the patent claim yes. is appropriately a question And, and how of do you law? distinguish it from all those other issues which probably were sent to the jury? Because, well, for, in the first instance, the juries in common law England were not asked to interpret the words of a patent. And that was for practical reasons as well as legal reasons. Juries in common law England were often illiterate. Uh, the courts reserved to themselves the interpretation of the written word. What juries were asked to do in common law England, to the extent that you can discern it from the few cases that there are, is to decide whether this specification was the appropriate recipe for how you made this particular type of stucco, or whether it, it was able to, to teach somebody how to make uh, the widget, whatever it may be. And the testimony which was heard was not of anyone other than the artisan coming in and said, I followed the recipe, I did make it. So what we'd like to find is someone who once went to an English judge in 1780 and said, Judge, you're supposed to decide whether this document before you is non-obvious. To do that, you have to know two things, what the document means and what future world was like, what previous world was like. The second part's factual. The first part's purely legal. Judge, instruct the jury as to that first part. No one ever said that. I did not see anything like that. Could you give a sensible reason why you would put these things on different sides of the line? No. It wasn't that a major concern here that you've got something that is an action at law? Patent infringement is an action at law. And then you're going to take the issues one by one and take them away from the jury, and pretty soon you'll have nothing triable to a jury. I don't believe that that is a valid concern because the Federal Circuit has taught us that there are a number of issues that are to be left yeah, to the jury. But what yeah, it does raise the ultimate question, which isn't in this case, is whether there is a Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial in a patent case. And that's the grand error issue. I thought that at least everybody in the Federal Circuit agreed that there is. Now, if Congress wants to concoct some entirely other regime, like it can make 
uh, what were once tort cases into workers' compensation cases. That's that, one thing. That's correct. And as long, uh, as, long as Congress has uh, provided that patent infringement uh, actions for damages are to be tried to a jury, and the statute provides for that, there is a role for the jury in patent cases, from the determination of issues of yeah, damages, and for the Hilton Davis case, as in the question of equivalence, uh, there are a number of issues uh, which uh, are appropriate for the jury, and especially the jury deals with the ultimate question of infringement. Does the accused device invade the meets and bounds of the patent? That is the, the jury's ultimate job. It's the court's job to tell the jury what the patent means, and this court has said that on numerous occasions. It's the court's job to tell the jury what the patent means, and in the infringement case, it's the job of the jury to find out whether that accused device invades uh, you know, that monopoly, uh, whether the, the patent reads on the accused device. That is, yeah, that's the, the essence, and that's the jury, tri the jury trial which you're entitled to in, in patent cases. Let me ask you another analogy question, and I should have done it before, but I didn't think of it. On the one hand, we've got the, the case of statutory construction, uh, construction of, of agency regs and so on. Uh, we say that's always a matter of law. It never goes to the jury. Uh, the, the, the kind of the, the limits of meaning, the rules by which we find meaning, uh, the, 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 the process by which we, uh, we look for, quote, evidence, unquote, of meaning, those are all things for, that, that courts alone can do. Easy case. At the other extreme, you've got the, the question of contract construction. And as you pointed out, one of the issues in contract construction uh, may well be an issue of subjective intent. What did these people or one of them have in mind? So that makes it a classic kind of, of, uh, of, of evidentiary question. You said, well, here uh, in, in a uh, patent, uh, patent uh, claim, we don't have uh, a, 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 an issue of subjective intent simply because the objects of stating patent claims rule out that as a legitimate consideration, and I will accept that. But isn't, and here's where I get to my question, isn't it also the case that the terms that are supposed to be used in these claims are terms which have meaning within the art in question? So therefore, the matter of meaning is, is something for which we can legitimately look outside the document. And isn't there a strong analogy between looking for the understanding of the art or the trade, something outside the document, and looking for the subjective intent of parties, which is also outside the document. Uh, the evidence bearing on them may be different, uh, but aren't, aren't, isn't the fact finder engaging in essentially the same kind of fact finding? In one case, he's saying contracts, what did they specifically have in mind here? In the other case, he's saying, what does this whole body of people mean by this term? Isn't the analogy between those two questions a strong analogy? No, I think it's a very weak analogy. <laughs> That's just in my... <laughs> Would you explain that? <laughs> yeah, you yeah. may explain briefly. I think it is a weak analogy because the question of what a specific term used in a contract to the requisite community, community which is skilled in that is something which does not exist except for the patent documents themselves which frame... The, you know, the yeah, you wouldn't inquiry. use the term if you weren't writing a patent. And, and, you, and it frames the inquiry, and when you are hearing outside the patent documents from somebody, 
you have the documents themselves which are written in an objectively uh, directed fashion to judge you know, what that meaning is. Parties can mean anything that they wish with their contracts. It's between only uh, two sides. And the question of the subjective intent of the parties in a contract only gets decided by the jury in many jurisdictions if the judge concludes initially, after reviewing the contract, that he's not going to interpret it as a matter of law or she's not going to interpret it as a matter of law from the four corners. Thank you, Mr. Griffin. Uh, Mr. Mullen, you have two minutes remaining. Quickly then, uh, the majority decided only the general issue. That's the reason Mr. Markman lost his infringement verdict. The court never reached uh, the sufficiency of the evidence point. It's not uh, uh, up. there are all kinds of validity issues where the jurisprudence of this court is clear that the underlying facts go to the jury. And I don't have time to rattle them off, but it seems to me completely inconsistent with that, that we would pick out this one term analysis, which is very much the same, and say it doesn't go to the jury. And when you're dealing with credibility, it's artificial to say that you're not finding facts. There have been marking trials, so-called, after majority opinion. We cite some of them in my brief, where they talk about the professor, how much he's getting paid, how much he's getting in royalties, for some, all the typical things about whether he's to be believed or not, and what those judges say about whether uh, they're deciding credibility and whether the witness is uh, uh, believable or not. And as Judge Mayer pointed out before, when you decide the meaning of the term in an infringement case, most of the time you decide it the infringement. The jury is essentially ejected out of the infringement analysis if uh, they are not allowed to decide genuine issues of fact regarding the meaning of the term. If the term is so vague that the fact ought to be invalid, that's another question. Well, surely, be held there's, invalid. surely there's a separate issue of whether there's been an infringement or not. I mean, there's not just the definition of the, pat- of, of, of the patent. There's, there's also whether, whether the, uh, the competing... Uh, uh, instrument was an infringement. That's still left entirely. That's still the case, but it's more theoretical and real. Once you know what the term means, there's the accused device sitting there. You know whether it's come. And that's all that uh, as judges well, on the federal circuit indicate. A big question indeed. I don't think there's nothing left for the jury. In most cases, I would suggest, Your Honor, that there is very... That's uh, just like left. saying a contract case is over once the, once the court tells the jury what the contract means. And thereafter, there's nothing left. Of course, there's plenty left. The jury has to decide whether the contract was complied there's with. There's a lot more left in a contract case, Your Honor, but it isn't uh, the, the same thing in a jury case where the, the term analysis, what does that cover, when that's determined what is a genuine issue of fact by the judge, there's really nothing significant left for the jury, as Judge Mayer pointed out. Thank you, Mr. Mallow. The case is submitted.